everybody. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. We are at episode 85 and we are recording in early mid-ish December. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Good morning, Dr. Scott. Good morning. Yeah, we don't usually record in the morning, do we? Top of the morning at eight o'clock on a Sunday. <laughs> That's all me though, because I, we've packed so much into every weekend. First of all, I'm like, how is it Sunday? But it's like December is just bananas. So thank yeah, you for entertaining this early morning. You know, I look at like, I have to look at every year of the week before Thanksgiving to the week after New Year's is just all bets are off. Yep. You know, yep. it's like Pretty much. all bets are off. Yeah. This is the last episode of the year though. Right. 85 total for LA Not So Confidential. And we just wrapped up a really fun, very small, intimate Patreon party, but was totally fun. Yeah. We had a great group of people. It was so nice. Two people from New Zealand. What? I know. Like, I'm <laughs> still like reeling by that. That's so amazing. Midday, next day for them. So funny. I great. also got, I was going to tell you, remember we got an outreach from a lovely professor at Barnard College in New York. And I did a guest lecture a few weeks ago and I got a box of Barnard swag. I'm so excited. Like That's right. Yeah. So where is Barnard and what did you talk about? Barnard College is part of Columbia University in New York. And it's a, a really fantastic school with a great reputation. There are nearly, I think, 50 majors at Barnard. Oh. And they they basically are like a real, what I would consider a liberal arts college, which is mm -hmm. what my undergrad was. And let's, let's make sure everybody understands if there's somebody here that doesn't understand. Liberal does not mean in this context <laughs> political. It means that the foundation is that you may be pointing in one direction for your career path and you want a specific education for that, but your background education is going to be be very well-rounded. So mm -hmm. it offers degrees in humanities, arts, social sciences, natural sciences, a lot of interdisciplinary areas. And I got an outreach. I mean, we did via the website from Dr. Taylor from uh, a psych class that she teaches and asked if one of us would be available to speak about any subject we wanted to. And one of the things they wanted, if they, they wanted to see if you were available or both of us at different times, they wanted to talk to you about working with sex offenders, which is, of course, always Got like it. a fascinating topic. Yeah. And since you did that a lot longer than I did, I said, well, Shiloh's super busy right now, but she'll get back to you for sure. a year. <laughs> and she finishes all her <laughs> no. other commitments. But I was available and I offered to talk about working in corrections. And nice. so I did a, a presentation on working in corrections and really great interaction and great questions. And it was super fun. I love that. I and, miss working with students so much. Yeah, especially in a field like psychology, mm -hmm. because you're pulled to it for that level of curiosity. I don't think anybody comes into this field that isn't really insanely curious about human sure. behavior. So thank you so much for that opportunity. I was very excited and I love the swag. I love, I love swag. That's awesome. Yes, you do. Well, so our topic for today was very recently suggested yes. by a listener. We like never pick up something like that and run with it. I'm, I feel bad well, as many quickly, times as, right. yeah, as many times as I'm like, thanks, I will put it on the list. I 
feel like I say that all the time, but Hal S, who is a listener and one of our Instagram followers, suggested we talk about hazing. I think he had listened to another podcast that had covered a very just specific case. I don't know how much they went into actual hazing or not, but I thought this is fascinating. I want to learn about this too. (laughs) So we did. And I think it's a really important topic. The research shows that as many as 22% of Americans indicate that they have been hazed at some point in their life. And yeah, we're going to, we're going to get into the, I literally broke this down in our outline as like the who, what, when, why of all of this. I would say the only trigger warning might be that we're going to talk about some assaults that result in death. But yeah. So have you ever experienced hazing, Dr. Scott? I don't really think so. Are you just Um, keeping secrets from your secret society? (laughs) I, oh, I wish. I wish I was important enough to be part of a secret society. But no, I don't think I have. I mean, I have... This is... I mean, it's interesting, like, you know, you and I bring our own personal opinions and we try and lay open our biases when we talk about some of these subjects mm-hmm. that are triggering. This is a particularly triggering subject for me because I don't understand why people would allow it. I don't yeah. understand why you would go through it. And that might come from my own background and my own family stuff, which is like almost every other family has its mm-hmm. its skeletons and shadows and, and dark stuff, as well as some really wonderful, wonderful love and support. I mean, it's that balance that sort of makes us human. But this is something that I never got. I mean, I just don't. Did you have one? I, I didn't get hazed. I had friends that were Greek in college uh-huh. and they uh-huh. got hazed. But what about you? I would say yes. And, you know, it's interesting because you when you were saying, I don't think I have, a lot of this we find is about perception. Right. What does the person perceive the behaviors or the ritualistic behaviors to be? Do they even perceive it to be quote unquote hazing? I would say the closest thing is in high school. It happened to me and we did it to the next group of cheerleaders that made it. And it was actually after they had made the cheer squad that we would arrange with their parents to literally kidnap them at like five in the morning, we would pull them out of bed. And basically we we told their parents, like if, you know, if they go to bed in a tank top and underwear, like just pack us a sweatshirt and sweatpants or something. But we would take them out of bed, put them in the car, go, you know, each of us, we probably paired up and then we went and got like three or four girls, however you many you could fit in a car. And we would take them to Denny's for breakfast. But while they were at Denny's for breakfast, we would quote unquote, do their hair and makeup, <laughs> which was not a pretty thing. So they looked crazy. By the time we got to school early, we had them do cheers in front of the school as all the other students were arriving in their pajamas with crazy makeup or masks on their face, like beauty masks, hair all stuck up crazily. And they had to be at school like that all day. And I swear my senior year, I didn't get my driver's license until I was 18. So I never drove anywhere, but I was paired up with my friend Candy, who is this wild redhead who is actually on the flag team. You think of the flag girls as being a little bit more like reserved and subtle. She was wild. And it was fully like that scene from old school when they're like kidnapping people and throwing them in the van. We put these girls... I have a picture uh, because my sister was one of them. We put these girls in the back seat. They had pillowcases over their head. We were blaring this this hip hop song that was from the movie Friday. <laughs> this was 1996, guys. Okay. So Dating yourself. Yeah. 
And she was just like driving crazy all over the road, like stupid, stupid teen stuff. Right. But yeah, it, it happened to us. And we were more than happy to mortify these girls when the next year came around. So, so I don't, I don't remember in high school, any of the, the male organizations or the jock organizations, but I, I was completely not in, in that group mm-hmm. at all. But I do remember, and I don't know if it was dance team or cheerleaders, but some of the girls having to carry around like a a, a milk jug full of blue water the entire day. And they had to have their hand on it the whole day or a brick wrapped in aluminum foil and they had to carry it. It had to be on their desk. It had to be in their hand. The teachers would be like so pissed off. (laughs) Like this again. They'd be like, oh God, this again. But I'm sure like, I mean, I, you know, I sort of had blinders on during high school for a number of reasons, particularly growing up gay in the South at that time where it's like, let me just focus on this and hoping, hoping nothing bad happens was basically mine. So I'm sure I missed a whole lot of things that, that happened, but you, did you ever feel like, I mean, looking back on it now, I mean, you're kind of like, you know, you're sharing a memory. Do you feel like any of it bordered on abusive? You know, I, I literally have zero memory of the year that it happened to me. Maybe, maybe it's a trauma reaction. No, I'm just kidding. I, I really don't have a a true memory of when they did it to me. I mean, I know they did, but it's like I, I happily remember when we did it to my sister and that group. It was just like so much fun being on that end of it, which is going to play in the psychology of what it's, we're talking about today. <laughs> it's going definitely. Right. I can right? see like the, I can see the gears in your head right now are, are turning yeah, as you try and yeah. recall those memories. And I think that that's another big part of it is we're going to be talking eventually about the plasticity of memory and uh-huh. human survival and what we do with potentially traumatic events in order to just keep going. Right. Yeah. And I, I jokingly say, you know, that it's a trauma reaction, but when you're a teenage girl, what is more mortifying than looking awful at school? Right. right. And not that I feel like I had any more weight on that than any other teen girl my age, but it had to be incredibly awkward and uncomfortable all day long. And there I was ready to pay it forward to the next class. Well, you know, I had a really close friend in high school and we stayed in touch and were close for many, many, many years. Really great guy, very unbelievably gifted artist that I had known since my freshman year. And he graduated with me from our high school. He went to one of the huge, huge state universities to study art. And he had had two brothers in the Greek system. He went into the Greek system, pledged the fraternity, made it through the hazing. And, you know, he successfully, like you said, he gladly, you know, joined the organization. And when we would meet and we had like a thing where we met every summer, every holiday, we hung out. It was like this ongoing, you know, just picking up exactly where we left off. Mm -hmm. And I would ask him like, what was that like for you? And he, he would describe things like, and this is so many years, but like, you know, really humiliating tasks and being ordered around, having to be almost naked. And what I remember kind of recoiling from was what I would consider moderate levels of physical abuse and really verbal insults that were pointed and really about you, like really not just global, but designed to really individualize to to undermine you. And 
He said, though, that at the end of it, when it was all over and he had made it through the whole thing, the person that he was guiding him through and kind of like the perpetrator of the abuse basically kind of clapped him on the shoulder, pulled him up and gave him a compliment. And I know he said it was the nicest thing anybody had ever said to me. And I just felt so amazing when he said this to me. And I was sitting there probably with a look of horror on my face, you know, even and this is like being like 19, 20 ish years old. And just going, no fucking way would I ever, ever do that. Yeah, dude, it's called Stockholm Syndrome. Right. <laughs> they compliment you at the end. You're like, oh, I feel so warm and fuzzy now. Thank you, master. <laughs> right. So, I mean, now look, I'm going to tell on myself a little bit. One of the things I really admire when I see really great examples of parenting, I will see relationships that where the hierarchy between parent and child are very well delineated. There's there's great boundary there. But there's also humor and the humor is used where it can be a little pokey, but it's never cruel. Mm -hmm. Like that is really great. I grew up in a situation with a father who had bipolar disorder who you never knew what to expect. So you never knew if you were going to get super happy, charming, intelligent, loves the world, or you were going to get somebody really angry, upset, irritable, cutting and I wouldn't say abusive, but really insulting. Mm -hmm. So because I got a mixed message, maybe my defense mechanism is like really, really strong with that where I go. No fucking way. I'm not into that at all. But yeah. let me tell on myself, I, I was also when I, you know, I was a mean guy too. you know, like I remember getting into a community of arts and artists and like sitting at a table at college with a bunch of theater majors and dancers is like, holy shit, there was a lot of insults. We were people were mm-hmm. scared of us. They yeah. were scared of us. And I, I would be scared of a 19 year old me and my mouth. <laughs> OK. All right. Well, so, I mean, it's what I think, a long I think way you've come. <laughs> I, really? Thanks for letting share. Yes, absolutely. I think that that's so interesting to look at our own experiences and backgrounds and developmental histories and how that might play into this and whether you would have a severe reaction to it to where you'd be like, nope, I'm not not even interested in entertaining this for whatever benefit. Or do people move forward with it anyway and are severely impacted because it repeats? some things they've experienced. It's thank you for sharing that. It's also the context of, of we define things and we look at things in a much broader and much more healthy way than perhaps we've done in the past. Sure. Well, let me give you a very early example. So in 1928, there was a 19 year old football player at the university of Texas and he died from electric shock. His name was Nolte McElroy and he was not changing a light bulb or bathing near a radio, he was undergoing a hazing ritual required by his fraternity where he was required to crawl through a dark, claustrophobic maze of mattresses that were charged with an electric current. It's practically 100 years later, and the phenomenon of hazing continues to be a chronic, enduring controversy that exists, regardless of the number of injuries, deaths, prison convictions, which are minimal, and lawsuits that it's produced in both college and high school environments and others like we're going to talk about today. It's just brutal to think that it's been going on for this long. And as I was saying when earlier before we started recording, when you and I started doing the research on this, I was telling you I found a journalist, a retired journalist who has written like four books. He is the expert on hazing mm-hmm. and the history of hazing in 
all sorts of different contexts, whether it's sports, whether it is fraternities, Greek system, other secret society organizations. But I want to point out that bullet point that you just mentioned rarely leads to convictions. Yeah. Rarely leads to convictions. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about why. But yes, I mean, it's been going on for so long. And the thing about hazing is that it's common across different countries, cultures, societies, and hazing or other ritualistic initiation behaviors have been practiced for as long as we can go back. So we're going to get into that in the why, but let's talk about the what. What are we exactly talking about when we mention hazing? Right. I've aggregated the information from a lot of different sources. And we talk about hazing as a form of rite of passage for transitioning into something exclusive, like a fraternity or a sports team. But interestingly enough, as much as news coverage as the fraternity examples get, the newest research indicates that sports teams are the major source of these experiences. So let me give a simple definition. It is the abuse of new or prospective group members Or, and I'm quoting from one of the sources, the imposition of strenuous, often humiliating tasks as part of a program of rigorous physical training and initiation. That can include humiliating and sometimes dangerous initiation rituals, especially as imposed on college students seeking membership to a fraternity or sorority. Yeah. So you mentioned rites of passage in some of the research on ritualistic behavior in more tribal cultures. Sometimes it's referred to as rites of terror. So if that doesn't hit home, what this can actually be. Right. So the whole point is to instill terror. Yep. Right. Okay. So in the more brutal world of hazing rituals in Greek systems and the sports world, the wide variety of ordeals suffered by hazies includes physical assaults, scarification, sleep deprivation, labor, and and others that we will hit on later. Now, what's interesting is that there's sort of a dual movement in the college system in that everybody wants to get on board and say, we are taking care of this. It's not going to happen anymore. We're not going to let these things happen. And yet it still happens. But I found several webpage. And I'm going to focus on the University of Michigan's webpage because they really did a great job of explaining everything and laying out the rules that they're expecting all incoming students to understand. I would say that I don't know how much any student really prepares themselves by reading these things or parents for that matter. But in Garrett's law, hazing is defined as including the following willful acts with or without the consent of the individual involved. It means physical injury, assault or battery, kidnapping, shy or imprisonment, physical activity that knowingly or recklessly subjects a person or persons to an unreasonable risk of physical harm or to severe mental or emotional harm, degradation, humiliation, or compromising of moral or religious values, forced consumption of any substance, placing an individual in physical danger, which includes abandonment, and undue interference with academic endeavors. Acts of hazing only include those acts which are done for the purpose of pledging, being initiated into, affiliating with, participating in, holding office in, or maintaining membership in any organization. Acts of hazing include acts indicated by an individual onto one or more people. So they're really getting specific, right? Yes. So when I hadn't seen this in a definition before, but it's compromising of moral values. This reminds me. So my college boyfriend was participating in Rush. Actually, we both did. I'll get to that later. But we were both criminal justice students. And I remember the fraternity that he was rushing that 
they said, hey, we know that you want to have a career in law enforcement. We're not going to make you do any of the illegal stuff that we do here. <laughs> so they, wow. they carved out a little, like it was a thing they did for the criminal justice students. If they knew your job trajectory was one that had to be clean, they had to steal like a road sign or something. Yeah. If I'm remembering correctly, but they basically told him like, you're allowed to sit out on this one. Interesting. Yeah, very. Yeah. We're going to carve out this level of illegality in order yeah. for you to but these career. other guys. Yeah. But these other guys, about their record. <laughs> really, but they've got to go rob a bank. So hazing can include anything that creates a risk of injury to any individual or group, causes discomfort, causes embarrassment, involves harassment, degradation, humiliation, ridicule, or the willful destruction or removal of public or private property for the purpose of initiation or admission into affiliation with, or as a condition for continued membership in an organization. So again, I like how they really nailed it down. Like we're describing anything possible that you guys could be thinking of that are going to affect these students. Yeah, because too often it's left up to interpretation. So as we look and kind of take that University of Michigan policy and step into the legal realm, here in California, it is a crime. It's Penal Code Section 245.6. So the 245 sections are all assault sections. And this is California's law against hazing. It makes it illegal to participate in initiation activities that are likely to result in serious bodily injury to a current, former, or prospective student. They specify that no injury actually has to result for the crime of hazing to take place. And it's more about the likelihood of serious physical injury that makes the activity illegal. The hazing that does not result in serious injury is a misdemeanor. Here in California, it's punishable by a fine of up to $5,000 and up to one year in county jail, which is the incarceration punishment for any misdemeanor here is only up to a year. And hazing became a crime in California only after 2006, when there was the death of a Cal State Chico student who was forced to drink copious amounts of water and, of course, undergo some other stuff, but died after having to drink all of that water. So as of 2019, there are 44 states that have passed laws prohibiting hazing. Of those 44 states, only 10 states have laws that explicitly make hazing a felony when it does result in death that or serious staggering. injury. That's staggering to me. Yeah. Yeah. So there are what, 40 states that don't have it as a felony when someone dies. Prosecutors tend to decline to file charges when they, in my opinion, are having some tunnel vision about what they think hazing is. So these laws, you know, this is way more vague than the policy you read from University of Michigan. But if they think, okay, this isn't excessive alcohol consumption or physical assault, so it's not fitting our vision of what hazing is, that's where we're seeing charges not getting filed or getting dropped. And an example would be another case out of California, actually here in Los Angeles, out of Cal State Northridge, where Armando Villa in 2014, he was pledging a fraternity. And what they did is they took the pledges on a hike. And as someone who has hiked a lot of Southern California, I can tell you if you are not well prepared, even one of the lowest elevation hikes can be torturous with the heat, with the climate, the dryness, the sun, just the sun beating down on you. And he died because they gave them improper on purpose, improper fitting shoes. That sounds like torture in and of itself. They did not have enough water. They did not let them wear proper clothing. It was completely designed to be a really tough hike. And he ended up dying 
on the hike because of all of the elements and everything at play. And nobody got prosecuted because it was a hike. It wasn't what we think of when we think of hazing. So two things, just to reiterate for anybody, just to make sure people understand hiking out here in this environment. We are a desert environment, even in the Los Angeles area. There's high desert, there's low desert, even though we're close to the ocean. is It is very dry out here. And if you don't stay hydrated, I mean, you can go to the doctor for your checkup and the doctor was like, you didn't hydrate, I can't get any blood. I mean, that's a common thing that happens here. These kind of things just are heartbreaking to me when you hear that nobody was held responsible. But it does reflect back to, that University of Michigan list of issues because that is designed as much as we would like to go, oh, great, the college is on top of it. No, what the college is doing is that they are making sure, hey, we explicitly outlined what you're not allowed to do. You can't hold us responsible. You have to hold the individuals or the fraternity or sororities or society responsible. And then as we will further explore as we go through this episode, that rarely happens with real convictions. So you let's go on to the who. We usually think of hazing in terms of college or university experiences, but it really is also known to be part of many other kind of in-groups. Other groups that come to mind are exclusive clubs or secret societies like Skull and Bones, which has been around forever and is the basis for many conspiracy theories. (laughs) Yeah, it's a secret society on Yale University. Yeah, you name it though. It's, you know, we, that's what we think of, but it also is from organized criminal gangs to first responders. It's found across the board. If there is a specialized in group, then there might be some hazing involved. So, motorcycle gangs, as an example, they have their prospects. So, prospects are treated less than. They aren't allowed to wear all of the insignias and patches. If you're ever if you're ever seeing a motorcycle gang driving down the freeway, the guy in the back that probably does he probably only has the what they call the lower rocker, which is the banner across the bottom, because generally there's an insignia in the middle and then a banner across the top and a banner across the bottom. He will probably only have the banner across the bottom. That's how you know it's a prospect. But he has to do all of the low level stuff from cleaning the clubhouse. I hate saying clubhouse. That makes it so like jovial, (laughs) you know, the clubhouse, clubhouse. um, Mickey Mouse's clubhouse. So he has to do the cleaning and kind of the grunt work, but he's also going to be doing hazing type activities that we think of the binge drinking and trying to prove himself in different ways. And that can be in criminal activity as well. So it might be the lower level stuff. Like, you know, I I just want to make sure I'm not referencing like Sons of Anarchy. (laughs) I'm going off of my old knowledge. (laughs) Right. But like, okay, we need some equipment to do this. You need to go be the one to go steal it. So it's it could be low level like stealing. Like Radio Shack batteries or are we talking about like... No, totally. uh, Okay. Yeah, yeah. Radio Shack, I don't think Radio Shack even exists anymore. (laughs) No, I don't think so. But like something from like like motorcycle parts and they're going to go to Pet Boys and kind of buy finger discount something. Right. Like the guys that are higher up in the pecking order don't want to be the ones that get busted for shoplifting, you know, okay. <laughs> that's kind of beneath them. So that sort of stuff. But then as it gets closer and closer to them becoming full members, the criminal activity level of sort of proving yourself gets higher and higher. So very similar to other types of criminal gangs, but just an example that I wanted to throw out there. We also see it in, at the other end of the spectrum, first responder professions, right? Another very specific in-group. There is this definite 
sort of delineation between the civilian world and the non-civilian world or the, you know, the sworn and non-sworn, if you want to put it that way. So just an example, my brother is a firefighter and he's over the age of 45 and he's been a firefighter forever. (laughs) And he recently changed departments to get a little closer to home and, and kind of finish his career in like a slower area. And he's still the new guy. They still treat him like a boot where he has had to do all the cleaning, all the undesired chores. I'm talking scrubbing toilets and all of that BS. So it, I, it still happens. <laughs> I, that blows my mind. For somebody that's already achieved that level of success and reputation to have to do that all over again, it just seems, again, I mean, it's just so outside my paradigm. I I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if I would say that that's hazing. It's, it's very cultural and I, I'm, I know I'm getting in blurry gray areas. It is the way that things are done. It's the way that it's always been. One of my least favorite phrases ever. Yeah. I don't like that either. But I don't know if I would say, you know, other than him texting me and going, oh, this is bullshit, you know, how much it's really impacting him physically or psychologically. Well, maybe we're looking at it then as a spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I here's, think so. here's an example here. It's like I wanted to get another example of like a fringe movement. Like, well, it means not so much fringe. It's become more, certainly more well-known and mainstream as the Proud Boys. Ugh. And they, I know, they were initially sort of a virtual gathering of narcopathic fever dreams <laughs> after founded by the ousted founder of Vice. I love the documentaries and stuff that Vice does. I think that they are cutting edge. They take- Yeah, we quote them all the time. I think they're great. One of their original founders was found to be like problematic and they were like, dude, you're out. He started his own media prospects and a group called the Proud Boys that allegedly promotes traditional masculinity. And their jump-in initiation includes being beaten by other members while having to shout out the names of five types of breakfast cereals. Oh my and God, that's the dumbest thing ever. I thought it was the dumbest thing ever. But like, you know, if you're if you're having the shit kicked out of you, you're on the ground in a fetal position and somebody's kicking you in the kidneys, it'd be a big deal. But then I went and I looked at videos online and oh, it's God. like, it's like little slap fests, like Slap, 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 slap. I mean, it's... Don't hit me too hard. The, uh, I, I... Cheerios. Cheer, cheerio. <laughs> Frosted Flakes. Oh, Narcopathic me. fever dream. Can that please be like the name of a, I don't know, festival we a, do one day? Yeah. That should actually be a, like a band name is Narcopathic Fever Dream. That is too funny. All right. So the, yeah, those are some very specific examples, but let's move on and talk about the high profile stuff. Those that we hear about, especially when it comes to injury or death. Right. So when it comes to fraternities, there's cutting, branding, labeling, or shaving parts of the body. A lot like, you know, the final level of Nixium, which was a cult, right? Oh, right. Required greeting of members in a specific manner when seen on campus. Required walking in groups to class, dining hall, having to carry certain items, like I told you. Loss of voice due to having to yell, which actually is a thing even in the cheer community, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, they don't direct us to like yell so much that the purpose is to lose your voice, but I guess it's one of the consequences. Right. Performing a special task for the members or others, requiring attendance at late night sessions, revol- resulting in sleep deprivation. Very interesting. Like sleep deprivation is really impacted my roommate, my first semester roommate. Like he was just worn out trying to do pre-med and, you know, yeah. just all the these things that were required of him. Well, this also sounds like Nexium. Like get up at three in the morning and play volleyball. 
Yeah. You know, and like, okay, maybe it's not required, but you are definitely going to feel like you're missing out on whatever knowledge is being bestowed at that time, right? Gross. I just keep thinking of Keith Rainier, that right. nasty, ugh. not being able to sit down because of soreness from paddling or other physical applications of pressure and injury to your bottom area, physical exhaustion from exercising. You, then we start to see some of the athletes, you start seeing people getting really worn out their grades impacted and being one of the ones that's really huge is being dropped off and having to find their way back, which is some of the cases that have come up of people that were dropped off in the middle of nowhere being expected to walk back. And then they get killed by a car on the side of the freeway or get mugged or jumped by actual criminals in the, in the area. Lovely. Wow. So that's sort of this hijacked version of maybe the military, like you're a Navy SEAL, we're going to drop you off in the middle of nowhere. You got to find your way back. But this right, is the but Navy SEALs have already, Navy SEALs by that point have already gone through amazing, unbelievable sure. amounts of training. They're, they're machines at that point. Well, and it's for a purpose, right? So right. this is one of the distinctions when we're talking about hazing behaviors that's in the literature is in one of the big researchers that I'm going to talk about, Samino, he actually lays out a, a very, like a made up hypothetical version where he explains this. And he says, if the activity has to do with the actual performance of the job or whatever the the group does, then generally it's not hazing unless it falls into more abusive. But if it has nothing to do with it, then it is hazing. So he gives the example, he he created this fictional group. He says, I'm going to call them the block holders. And their entire purpose of their job is to carry cinder blocks up a hill. So they, before they become block holders for hours a day, they're made to carry around cinder blocks directly related to the job. Now, if we have a book club and the purpose of their group is to read books and discuss making prospective members of the book club carrying around cinder blocks for hours a day does not make sense. Right. <laughs> it's punishment. It's hazing. It's it's abusive. So I I like that. And that's a great think, distinction. Yeah. Yeah. When we talk about is this part of the job? Because I'm going to talk about the military in a second, but you know, we think of some of the stuff the military does and trains as as pretty brutal. And you know, you have people yelling at you and it kind of feels like, is this hazing? Anyway, let me come back to sororities. We find with sororities, there are some things that mimic fraternities in terms of the binge drinking, like the high alcohol consumption that's expected and directed, as well as even some physical assault stuff. So an example would be, you know, not pummeling in fights, but having girls face a wall and be blindfolded and they're hurling expletives and, you know, talking down to them and pointing out their flaws and asking them to say things and repeat things. And if they get things wrong, then their faces are shoved into the wall. So, you know, some physical assault stuff happens with women. It's not as much as we see with the fraternities, but a lot of what their activities revolve around are issues of shame and sexuality. So really... How would that manifest? Like in what way? in on that. So there's been basically stripping down and having to dance sexually for fraternities, like at a party Ooh. or... Or I know... 
Or it might be you're in a darkened, you know, basement with spotlights on you and your potential sorority sisters are in there and they say, okay, give us your best stripper dance. And there you are having on the spot to do something like that. They will also get into a lot of body shame issues. So one example that I heard of, which is probably not the most horrific, but is just hits home is they would have a girl strip down to her underwear and bra and then have her sit on top of a washing machine that was going. And if any part of her body jiggles, they would take a red marker and circle it. So really honing in on insecurities having to do with body issues, which is Yikes. already, you know, just for a, a woman that age to have those things pointed out by a group that you want to be accepted by can be really, really impactful. So they're they're similar but different. I, I wanted to review just a really big study in 2008 that was done looking at US college students. And they found that 55% of college students who were affiliated with an organization, be it fraternity or sports team, identified that they had experienced at least one act that falls under hazing. But 91% of these students did not perceive the act as hazing. So just as what we were talking about, Crazy. it's all about perception. Yeah. So once they were able to identify the act, 55% said, yep, that's happened to me. But 91% of them said, no, I, I, I didn't see that as hazing. They also said that more students perceive positive rather than negative outcomes of hazing. So they're able to list off all the good stuff that came from it. And in 95% of the cases where students identified their experiences hazing, they did not report the events to anybody or they did not report the events to campus officials. They do talk about it to other people, friends and family, but nothing ever gets reported. So if it's not getting reported, 95% is not getting reported. I see the conundrum that's playing into all of this too, right? Like you're talking about the guidelines that are being put out, but the guidelines are not really holding the school responsible. But then if no one's really reporting it, then they might think it's less of a problem than it really is. Well, right. It's that's it's coercive control, or at least the idea of coercive control unconsciously of like, I can't tell on anybody. Well, of course. Everybody yeah, goes through this. I can't tell. I'll get in trouble or I won't get in the fr frat. I won't get in the sorority. Yeah. I'm going to be the one person that says something. What? Yeah. So there's clearly this gap between the experience and identification of what hazing is. And probably I would say in part due to the student's misunderstanding and inability to clearly define define what hazing is. So I just think that's super interesting that they're not able to really see it for what it is. And then at the end of it, probably for the things you talk about, like with your friend where he's like, the compliment was just the best I've ever felt. That can quickly wash away the bad stuff. Yeah. Mm. So in the military, I found a fantastic study that the RAND Corporation did looking into hazing. And I love that the military outsourced someone else to look into this and offer suggestions of how they could improve in addressing it and educating on it and hopefully tackling this problem. But let's talk about what, what goes on in the military first before we get to problem solving. So the current Department of Defense definition of hazing is this, a form of harassment that includes conduct through which service members or DOD employees without a proper military or other governmental purpose, but with a nexus to military service, physically or psychologically injures or creates a risk of physical or psychological injury to service members for the purpose of initiation into, admission into, affiliation with, change in status or position within, or a condition for continued membership in any military or DOD civilian 
organization. So another example of like, we're going to really lay it out for liability issues. And I bet, I wonder what year that was finally. So this one was 2019 and it was only after Rand had put in their two cents, which was 2016, 2015, 2016, I think. So, I mean, we're talking a handful of years ago, pretty darn recent. The types of hazing that they outlined that occur in the military are threefold. So there can be an initiation ritual. So these are ceremonies and rituals that mark entry or transition into the military. Then they also said that something different is called newcomer testing. And these are tests intended to prove new members' commitment or solidarity and to screen out those free riding to obtain the benefits of group membership. And free riding comes up a lot. It's It comes up as a, a reason for hazing So you don't have people that just get the benefits of the group without putting something in. And the putting something in part is the hazing. If you endure this, then you really want to be part of us and you deserve to have the benefits of the group. So hazing is seen as weeding out those free riders. And then the third type of way that it manifests in the military is just called maintenance of group structure. So this is exercise of dominance by more powerful members over weaker members. So that can be authority-driven, chain of command-driven to maintain existing power arrangements and enforce group norms. So what is the what is the thing that's done in the military with what is it, it has it's it has the injury there's a blood something what Yeah yeah and I, I got confirmation from one of our listeners about this happening it's called blood pinning or your blood wings so this is fairly well known it is basically pinning on your new insignia or badge without protective backing. And as it gets pinned to you, your fellow peers and members come along in a line and punch the pin into your, through your skin, through your shirt Shit. and into your skin. And each person so it's not gets just to, one. Oh no, no, oh, no, no, wow. no. Okay. Go down the line. So the okay. insignia's metal pins get into the hazed member's flesh. I mean, there's pictures online with people's just shirts soaked in blood. But yes, it happens. So uh, just to break down the uh, percentage of hazing behaviors in the different branches, Marine Corps, you're leading the way. You by far and away have the most incidents of hazing of all behaviors. 11% of your behaviors are hazing related. Army's at 9%, Navy's at 5%, Air Force doing pretty good at 2%. So, and that, that comes as no surprise to any of Marine Corps, former or current Marine Corps members I talk to. They say, yep, sounds about right. Yeah. So I thought this was really interesting, something that you pulled because does this work? Does this help? Especially when we're talking about military, you know, you and I, you and I have talked about what characteristics make a good military member and does it help the mission? We've talked about that in the past, especially when it comes to personality, but... They have found that willing participants might be motivated by a desire to prove to senior soldiers their stability in future combat situations, right? So relating the hazing behavior to actually applied behaviors in the field, like it would make the unit more secure, make them better, a better team. But blatantly brutal hazing can, in fact, produce negative results. They make units more prone to break, more prone to desertion or mutiny than those without such severe training traditions. And this was studied and observed in the Russian army in Chechnya, where units with the strongest traditions of hazing were the first to break and desert under enemy fire. Wow. 
That's yeah. that's really interesting. And I can't help but think or wonder how much of that has to do with it being the ideals of masculine role norms or male mm. role norms, masculine ideology, who that disallows many males in our cultures emotional outlets. They don't have an emotional vocabulary anyway to process what's happening. I'm not saying it's any more worse or less worse than hazing rituals that involve women, but women may be more, they may be more equipped to process what's happening to them when it's being, when it's happening to them at the effect of other women. Yeah. I, I don't know. That's, that'd be an interesting area of research. Yeah. Sure. So in sports, the same thing happens. And that's certainly not, I mean, we talk about college sports that there's an incident that I'll report on a little bit later, but even in professional sports, it can kind of, it can happen as well. Incidents of hazing types is twice as likely to happen within the context of sports teams. And in a 1999 study by Hoover specific to NCAA athletes, it found that more than a quarter of a million athletes experienced some form of hazing to join a college athletic team with 20% of those subjected to dangerous and potentially illegal activity. But when you go online and you Google what kind of hazing happens in sports, yeah. they give examples of being thrown in water or mud, eating disgusting things, wearing embarrassing clothing, drinking alcohol, destroying property, being beaten. You know, it's this very sort of simple list of things. When when they say drinking alcohol, it's like binge drinking and forced yeah. drinking, and which has led to deaths and many sure. examples of hazing and destroying property can be very, very serious and then lead to problems down the road for those for those athletes themselves because they've now engaged in illegal activities. Well, you know, that's that would be interesting to kind of tease apart a little bit is, you know, when you rattled off that list, it kind of sounds a little juvenile. And I wonder if there's this awareness because universities have so much money built into their sports, of right? Of course That's it is. Everything that there's got to be some awareness of, hey, we can't do something that one is going to injure one of us because we physically use our bodies every day or get us thrown in jail and not be on the team anymore because now there's really a consequence to the university. Like they're going to be pissed and they're going to shut it down because the real consequence is money. Well, that's a whole other... And, and I have dear, dear friends who are major, major football fans. I mean, of... Well, of course you, you know, do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the South. And it is, I, I, it's something that I just don't, it's not that I don't get the sport. I think the sport is amazing, but the, the drive behind the money is, is so enormous. You know, that's a whole other subject. Yeah, we'll, it's, yeah. it's cultural. All right. So the, when of all of this is hard to pinpoint, where did this start? You know, how did this first become a thing? Because social scientists have been studying this behavior forever, for over, well, for over 100 years that it's really been wow. something that's been looked at in a research way. But it's difficult to say how and when it started because it's been documented for so long in some way or another. And what I make of this is that it's something in our DNA because this continues if we're talking about, you know, a tribal culture in a different country all the way up into the most contemporary and industrialized civilizations. So what I opine is that we know that humans like to be part of groups. We like to be accepted. We like to be included. It's just a part of who we are. Well, it's survival. And, right. So it comes back to the survival piece of our brain that knows that being a part of a pack or a tribe means you are going to survive. So now maybe that has morphed into, I'm going to survive college. I'm going to survive. Right the social life that I need, or maybe it's career survival. 
that you start to cluster into these in-groups and are willing to be put through this. Aldo Camino, he is at the Center for Evolutionary Psychology, which is under the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And he really seems to be a person that has done a really big body of research in this area. Clearly, he's going to take an evolutionary perspective. And he says, time and time again, new coalitions form, persist for some time, and then they invent or adopt hazing practices. So that's what he sees in his research. But before we we dive into more what he has to say in a couple of the theories... This is the why. This is all of that. But what is hazing supposed to do? Like, why why does it exist? And why do those that engage in these ritualistic behaviors do it? And the, the thinking is that the act of hazing or harsh initiation rituals contribute to increased liking of the group, commitment to the group, and cohesion. So this is the mindset that if we do this for our new members, they are going to be more cohesive with us and committed. And it's it's essentially a deliberate action to build solidarity and trust. However, the evidence is mixed and there's certainly research to support the physical and psychological injuries suffered by hazies. So is it worth it? I also talked about that they use hazing to eliminate these free riders. So those who take benefits of group membership without paying any cost for these benefits, but it's also to maintain the power bases and differentials from within. So even once you're a member, there can be additional hazing type behaviors that you are subject to, to let you know who's still in power, which is just its own level. So you can still, you can have made it through that first round of hazing and be part of the group, but throughout there might be more things that you have to endure that really are just there to kind of show who's still on top, which is very And that twisted. sounds very culty to me. It does sound culty. We're going to talk about culty. <laughs> but let's look at this first of all, first off through a ritualistic lens, a ritualistic behavior. And even though the ritual itself has there's a stated purpose behind it, right? There's a reason we're doing this. The relationship between the actions performed in the ritual and the stated purpose of the ritual isn't ever really that obvious. It doesn't really make sense when you look at it. Some reachers propose that participation in these opaque actions may contribute to perceptions of group bonding among participants. And the more painful, frightening, traumatic the actions, the more intense the perceived group bonding in these cases. The rituals create uncertainty. They create confusion and subsequently end up leading to the need for certainty and security, which then contributes to conformity to the group. So this is basically like group dynamics, group behavior. And so the perception is that this is normal. And I'm now part of the group. It's basically like trauma bonding. That's exactly what was popping up for me as you described that. Yeah. So we are creating a situation in which we want to be put through trauma to then bond better. I mean, I can do without trauma and do without that type of bonding if I can throughout my life. <laughs> I, I can make my you know intimate, emotionally intimate relationships more enriching in other ways or through other means, I think. Van Gepp, who's who was a researcher back in the 60s, he proposed that 
tribal initiation ceremonies follow a pattern of a cup of three different phases, separation, transition, and incorporation. And although he was studying tribal groups, I think you'll really see how this fits nicely with contemporary hazing that we're talking about here. So with separation, that first phase, first initiates are separated from their perceived lives, their family, their friends, whatever roles they previously played. So again, this can be when you were a civilian and now you're not anymore, or any sort of non-group versus in-group roles. And then the second phase is that they then transition to their new lives or the new world. So the new world, sometimes like when he was studying tribal cultures would be the world of adults. So you have now transitioned into adulthood or the world of the sacred. And this transition process can involve processes like beatings, mutilations, intoxication. Those were something that were found in some of those tribal cultures. It reminds me of, I, I, this was forever ago and probably some history channel show that I watched, but when, and I don't even remember where this particular tribe was from, but when the boys were transitioning to manhood, they would have to stick their hands in these, they look like oven mitts, but inside had thousands of red ants. Yeah. So they would have to stick their hands in these gloves and keep them on. And then there was also you know, another one where they like leapt off of this platform with a rope tied to their feet. So they're kind of bungee jumping, but they get very close to the ground. And it's it's kind of this trust fall to and the end And it's not degree. an elastic rope either. No, no. It is no, like people, woven by somebody. Yeah, they die all the time on that one. <laughs> yeah, it's like woven by that person sitting over in the corner. So then finally, the last stage, initiates are incorporated into their new role. So often this comes with a change in appearance, a change in name or title along with it. And then they are finally apart. So, you know, I, I can, as I read through these and you think about the different cultures this happens in, I can also see how this fits really well with, you know, even a fraternity. You're you're kind of leaving your old yeah. friends behind, perhaps. You're being put through all these hazing rituals. And then you are now brother so-and-so or, you know, here's your sport coat to now signify who you are. There's all of this symbolism that goes along with it. There's also a, you know, I think we've kind of danced around this a little bit, but sort of this group dependency theory. And this is the idea that hazing contributes to greater dependency on the group. So the idea Um, that you creating a sense that may, it's not necessarily true. Right. But you're, you're creating that. Okay. Yeah. So essentially the feelings of threat may contribute to individuals' desires to then affiliate and bond with others who are similarly threatened and potentially to affiliate and bond with the sources or the causes of threat. So I know we're all thinking more culty behavior, right? Or dynamics here. Yep. Therefore, those who are hazed end up depending on the group more, and this could increase their inclination to affiliate with group members and others who are being hazed and being involved in the hazing for the next group. So this is sort of lending to that cyclical effect that really seems to be impossible to break at this point. The studies done in this area tend to support a social dependency explanation for the effects of hazing, but it's showing really only in the short term. So this this works initially So maybe it is a a way to sort of get them in the door and get the buy-in, but it's not something that really lasts long-term. But I guess the front end is the important, you know, to get people to buy in. Yeah, it seems like that. It's like maybe the group isn't depending on long-term, especially if we were to apply this to four-year college. 
We don't need you to, to do that. Although, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that's always touted as a benefit of the Greek relationships is that, you know, you, and it really is, I mean, studies show it's like people that are involved in Greek societies, you know, especially from Ivy League colleges, they have doors open to them regardless of their facility or their intelligence or oh, yeah. their ability. The, the, the earnings are much higher. The career pathways just open up, the, which they don't open up for other people that don't have those connections. Yeah, definitely. So Camino, he's, he's the one from the University of Santa Barbara. He, his theory is called automatic accrual theory. And he puts it right out there that hazing really is a complex phenomenon that probably results from a number of causal forces. But being the evolutionary psychologist that he is, he set out to provide a set of precise, evolutionarily informed predictions about some of the causes of the motivations of hazing. And he found that when in-groups increase the perception of assumed benefits through the context of an enduring intergenerational coalition, it significantly increases the desire to haze the new member. So this is, we're talking about motivation, like why is someone engaging in this behavior? I'm benefiting so, it, so I'm going to continue it. Yes. So essentially, they start realizing the benefits they've received from being a part of the group and believe that it's actually tied to the hazing that occurred from the onset. The belief, if the hazing doesn't happen, then the benefits won't be as obvious for the new members. Further, the perception of automatic benefits not only increased desired initiation harshness, but also increased the desired dominance over new members and demands for new member labor during the initiation. So again, here we have this endless cycle that lasts for generations and has been created from, in his view, really putting this false sense of, oh my gosh, all these benefits are actually coming from the thing that came first, which is the hazing. Right. So I, those are really interesting theories. I, I think it is, like he said, it comes from a number of sources and we can talk about a couple other group dynamic issues here, but what, what did, what kind of popped out to you as far as site concepts about the hazing phenomenon? Well, you know, before I start doing the research or before I started doing the research, I just sort of like sat down with, you know, and made a list of like, okay, the people who engage in this type of behaviors, what would be driving them aside from what you have outlined previously as the importance of the ritual itself and what it might do on a sort of a cultural level. I was mm -hmm. thinking about what, what is the kind of individual that falls for this? And then I caught myself mm -hmm. sort of falling into this idea of what I would diagnose people as. And I was like, okay, wait, hold on. I don't need to get into right. doing a full-on DSM diagnosis of people who are doing something during a very impulsive period of their life. Totally. You know, I mean, very impulsive rarefied situation. So I was thinking, you know, is it entitlement? Is it narcissism? Is it the lack of impulse control due to, you know, that stage of brain development? And some of the things that came up for me, one of the first was the group think. I immediately thought of group think in terms of a literal definition, which is the practice of thinking or making decisions as a group in a way that discourages creativity or, here we go, key phrase, individual responsibility. Right. So it's a psychological phenomenon in which the individuals who are joined or gather or organized for some reason 
will make great effort to implement consensus within the group. And that was coined by um, psychologist Irving Janus back in 1972. And that is a literal quote from his research. So in these situations, a lot of times the individuals will reject or compartmentalize their own belief systems, their own morals, their values, their moral compass to internalize and dovetail with the opinion of the rest of the group members. Members rationalize, and there's a whole list of these things with that fall within group think. Members will rationalize their behaviors despite contrary evidence. Dissenting opinions are quelled by peer pressure, keyword peer pressure. The ongoing normalization of historic behaviors leads to keyword complacency. And then another big keyword is moral high ground. So each member of the group views him or herself as moral. It's the combination of moral minds, therefore thought not to be likely to make a poor decision. We're not making a bad decision because this has been going on for years. This is how we maintain our group. And we get the people who are really dedicated because they're the ones that are going to put up with this shit. Outsiders are seen as inferior. So it leads to an us versus them mentality. And the key word there would be stereotyping. And then a fight club mentality regarding censorship. The information about what's going on is rather limited and controlled so that any kind of alternative views outside the bubble are quelled. Well, and, it also and, makes it more desirable, right? Like um, I'm getting something it, special. Yes, yes, yes. Like we've talked about with I'm, sales techniques and con yeah. artists and all of that. Uh, it's I'm getting the shit beat out of me, but it's special. <laughs> And then finally, in that this whole groupthink paradigm, it's there's keyword illusion of unanimity. So no one speaks out against it, which then validates the narrative that's been established, right? Yeah. So the idea is basically that the desire for group cohesion and agreement will supersede the individual's pull toward common sense in order to stay aligned with the group. Like a lot of cognitive distortions going on. Like Yes. We when we feel icky about our own behavior, but then we look outward and see, oh, this is the norm. This is what people are doing. We our brain are in some ways poorly evolutionized brain starts giving us excuses to use and make us feel better. But going back to what you were saying, maybe that's the biological imperative. Maybe that's built into the DNA to some extent of, I have to align with the group in order to survive because you're still thinking that you're a primitive being living 10,000 years ago and need to bring in food by the end of the day and you need shelter. And it's, that doesn't exist anymore. It's just, you know, but the drive is still there. Yeah. So we've mentioned, you know, that this feels very culty and it's sort of cult-like behavior. I I read one article that a woman wrote for Cosmo about her experience in a sorority. And for all the crap she was put through, at the end, she said it was worth it. Like it, it was... And, and she, she owned up to the... the conflictual information that she was writing and feeling and all of that. But she says, quote, from the very beginning, one message colors everything you do. If you want what we have, if you want to be worthy of our attention, if you want to be one of us, you'll do what we say. Which I was like, ah, culty. <laughs> but which comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? So I'm right, thinking, yes, right. this does sound very culty, but cults are using these same tactics and techniques 
to utilize hazing to gain compliance. So it's right. it's something that, you know, obviously is like in our in our psyche right now and everybody's talking about cults and but this is stuff that has been done forever in all sorts of different Right. Uh, so maybe it's good that we're talking about that. So when it comes to these events that we're giving examples of where people's lives are in danger due to hazing to draw that parallel of like let's let's pop the bubble here mm-hmm. and look at how it aligns with other dangerous phenomenon like cults. I mean, the cults have a very specific set of parameters, but they also require a defined leader or leaders, you know, singularly. Yeah. So we're in the situations that we're describing regarding hazing, where it's a constant renewal of behavior that is passed on through generations of group sure. leader or leaders. So the senior class is always going to graduate and there's going to be people that pop up and like, okay, now I'm the king of the mountain, the queen of the hill. True. You know, I, it's my responsibility to pass this on. And I don't know. I mean, this also seems like it appeals to our more base, cruel nature. You know, I don't think anybody, there's no human that doesn't escape having a shadow self. I'm going to, I'm going to talk from a Jungian perspective, but still. Well, that's a good point that you make because when cult leaders die or go away, the cult kind of dies, right? I can't. Generally, yeah. I can't really think of one and I'm not super up on my cults, but I can't think of one where it's kind of gone through generations. I'm sure that exists, but... There's a really than... great horror movie about that, that very thing called One Bedroom, if anybody gets a chance. Oh. Low budget horror movie. One of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. It's in late, made, I think, in like two years ago. Oh my but gosh. Yeah. I was go thinking of mid Midsummer because, you know, they do have the elderly generation go to their demise. <laughs> In a very specific way. And that's also also religious and, you know, in order to, you know, ensure the continuity of the group and supposedly has some supernatural connotations as well, I think, in that particular one. But you were talking about (laughs) about cognitive dissonance. How does that play? Yeah, I mean, I... You know, this dovetails a little bit with what you were saying and how I pointed out there's some distortions going on, but cognitive dissonance theory could work nicely here in which, you know, it's where individuals whose, you know, their actions or behaviors are discrepant with their thoughts and their attitudes. And so when there's that discrepancy there, you start to feel extreme discomfort. So what do we do about that? And and for example, like after humans go through trouble or pain to attain something, they end up attributing more value to that object whether or not that object warrants that value because the more trouble or pain they go through, the more they need to justify their efforts of why they feel that way or why they put themselves through that to obtain an object and just thus the more value they place on it. An object can also mean membership in a group, like that goal, that end goal. So it might not line up with your thoughts and attitudes and morals, but again, you sort of justify, right? Yeah. So this is a weird thing to dovetail it with, but I remember talking to a friend of mine who's a plastic surgeon and he talks about a version of this within people who get plastic surgery and the pain you know if you like there are a lot of alternatives now but like say back in the day when it was nothing but like your alternative was a facelift where yeah. we're going to slice your face up we're going to yank everything really tight sew it up you're going to be swollen as shit you're going to be in so much pain for a week the swelling's going to take nine months to come down oh good god and people i mean this is you know we have now a lot you know there's a lot more advanced techniques right now. But every patient 
he would interview is a day after they regretted it. Like, this is the worst pain ever. It's awful. I hate it. I hate it. I hate everything about this. It's awful. And then as soon as the swelling went down nine months later, they would all minimize how much pain they had been in. And then they, they found also through studying that the people who had been through all that pain would completely minimize it to other people. Not necessarily saying, oh, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's really painful, but it's worth it. But they would go, oh, it's nothing. Oh, it's nothing at all. I got over it in no time. When they had been sobbing, sobbing, sobbing with pain. Because we have this plasticity of memory that leads us to minimizing or compartmentalizing traumatic events, particularly ones like this that are socially acceptable. Huh. Or like having more than one kid. See, I didn't fall for it. I was like, nope, I didn't like that. I'm not doing it again. Yeah, it's, I it's can't exhausting. Trick my, I can't trick myself into thinking labor was nothing. And I got an epidural. <laughs> well, at oh, least also man. you're not passing it on to other people like, oh, it's no big deal. It was oh, nothing. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. No. It's wonderful. What I pass on is nobody needs to be a hero. You get that epidural. Don't let anyone think that you're less of a woman for <laughs> not doing that. Yeah to each their own, their own birth experience, your own birth plan, do whatever you like. Right. All right. So let's, let's talk about effects on the victim or the yeah. hazy, what, like what impact it has on, on their mental health. Right? right. That Cosmo article was very enlightening in that they stated that universities counseling centers, their intake of new patients that are students triples during fall pledging. So, Oh my gosh. That's horrific just to think about that. And 90% of those newcomers are women. I have to say that if I was a newer clinician and I worked at, I worked at one of the Cal State campuses for about nine months to get hours when I was moving towards licensure, you know, if I had had that experience of working with a female student who was going through that, I think I would have been very biased. That would have been, I mean, I think I would probably maybe handle it better now. Sure. But I would have been like, get out, <laughs> you know, which is, <laughs> oh, which is not the... in alignment, but necessarily yeah. with what the client, like and their long-term goals are to succeed and move through this process. So, yeah, hmm. exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm just glad this phenomenon is getting more attention. I mean, so we're getting more studies yeah. now after literally decades of sweeping it under the rug and studies now have data that outline all the potential effects. Studies now have data that outline the potential effects of hazing. Now, it can include eating disorders, flashback, changes in sleep, intense flooding of emotions, re-experience of emotions in terms of flashbacks, like I said, and certainly a whole spectrum of symptoms along the spectrum of depression and anxiety. I mean, oh that's, that's a lot, right? That's like PTSD criteria here. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Students who intend or are pushed by parents or peer pressure to pursue Greek life generally don't conceptualize that they're at the receiving end of abuse. And I can tell you, so I I rushed in undergrad. I ended up not following through with it, but I can tell you, like, I didn't once think about like, oh God, I might be hazed. Oh man, what are they going to put me through? Didn't even think about it. Like it was all about kind of being swept up with a couple of my high school friends who ended up going to the same college as I, and they were doing it. And I was like, okay, like this sounds like a thing that you do. And once I got matched with my sorority, I pulled out. I was like, ah, <laughs> the validation that you want me is enough. I think I'm done here. So I didn't go through any of the the hazing stuff, but okay. never once crossed my mind that something bad was to come. 
And there's clearly a hierarchy involving incoming students receiving the most abuse from the older student. And studies show that victims believe they are learning important lessons about hierarchy and about discipline when they go through this. Yeah, I can think of easier ways to learn that lesson. But, you know, turning back around to University of Michigan and their explicit listing of what these things are, there's they, they clearly state that this is institutionalized abuse, which I think, again, I'm glad that they're saying it. I don't necessarily think that they're motivated beyond much financial liability, but I'm glad it's being said. 82% of deaths from hazing involve alcohol, wow. according to Hank Neuer, who's that researcher I was telling you about that's so good. It's about power and control. The hazers need to feel powerful and in control. Maybe that if we were going to mm-hmm dispassionately look at human development and cultural tribalism, then maybe there is a need for that to be developed. But that's a stretch, I think. Individuals cannot consent to being hazed because hazing is illegal. All right. So that's interesting from a legal standpoint. I think, again, probably motivating colleges want that in place so they can go, no, we're not even going to allow it to be happening. You can't consent to this. Well, that's going to come up in the case that I cover because the person was, was willing to do the the thing they wanted them to do. You know, but here the studies show that hazing doesn't really motivate anyone. It goes back to what you were saying that the the negative outcome in the long term is Mm -hmm. more more significant. It hinders academic achievement. It really impacts self-esteem and it causes immense emotional strain and many times physical harm. Now, it also can build animosity between people and does nothing to really build and implement trust, respect, or unity. It only makes people better at hazing. Like bullies. Bullies bullies bully and they're learning how to do it better so just because a majority of the members of an organization are not involved in a hazing incident doesn't mean that the organization is not responsible so it what Mm. he did show through a lot of research is that one class like there can be one class that says we're not doing this anymore yeah and then sticking to it because there are many classes over many examples in the last few decades that have said we absolutely will never do this again and then they go right back to doing it Wow. You also it, never know, really, like you can rush somebody, but you don't know what their mental health background is. You don't know no. if you're going to push them over the edge. You don't know if there's a genetic predisposition to a mood disorder or, right. you know, that you're going to trigger into full blossom by the trauma that the hazing procedure. Oh. Not only do you not know, they aren't even thinking about no, that. No, of course I mean, not. If, no. <laughs> you I think went through that, it. Why shouldn't they have to go through it? Well, yeah. And just like, hey, we're all, you know, self-sufficient adults in college. We should be able to handle this. So, yeah. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. All right, so let's turn to our cases here. So I'm going to talk about Robert Champion. He was a 26-year-old drum major at Florida A&M University, a school that's really known for its top-notch theatrical marching band, and they're called the 
marching 100. Oh, right. Yeah. But there there was a, a really dark tradition with the marching 100 and they called it the gauntlet. And it was part of what they called, quote, crossing over. And this rite of passage occurred after you were already part of the marching band, but in order to ascend to leadership or a more coveted position, you had to engage in this crossover. So the gauntlet consisted of entering a darkened marching band bus. So you couldn't see anyone who was sitting in the seats. You would remove your shirt, both men and women. Women were allowed to wear a sports bra. And you would have to make it down the aisle to the back of the bus while your teammates are punching, kicking you. Oh my God. Hitting you with drum, you know, or band equipment, drumsticks, anything they could get their hands on. You had to touch, right? I mean, they can punch you. Okay. Yeah. But you had to make it to the back of the bus and touch the wall. And then you, you had made it through the gauntlet court documents in this case state that Robert and another bandmate decided they were ready. They, they were going to do the gauntlet on this particular night and they had to notify the head band member. In this case, it was Jonathan Boyce who would then give permission for the gauntlet to proceed. So we're seeing this internal code of hierarchy here. And on November 19th, 2011, the team had just finished up with the last football game of the season in Orlando, Florida. And the bus was parked at the hotel where the team was staying. It was said that Robert took a shot of alcohol before he boarded the dark bus, stood up front, took his shirt off. And as he started down the aisle, one woman on his team held him from behind, basically trying to keep him from moving forward, dragging him backward, prolonging his journey down to the back of the bus. One witness interviewed said they were using hands, straps. I saw a large plastic comb, drumsticks, drum kicks. A drum kick is like that mallet that hits the drum with your foot, as well as what was described as just a storm of fists and feet. At one point, Robert collapses into a seat and a band member braces himself on the the seat backs and is jumping up and down on Robert. So stomping on him. Yeah, for an estimated 15 seconds, Robert was able to push himself free and then again, just greeted with a flurry of punches as he resumed his death march down the back of the bus. He finally reaches the back touching the the back wall of the bus to indicate he'd made it. And right away, he starts asking for water. They give him some Gatorade. He then starts complaining that he can't breathe and that he couldn't see, even though his eyes were wide open. Band members lead him to the steps of the bus. He continues to complain that he's having trouble breathing. And then he goes totally unresponsive. There's a bandmate with first aid training who checks his pulse, lays him down, starts CPR. Robert vomits at one point. And then the ambulance arrives and Robert dies on the way to the hospital. Oh my God. Did, what, what did they, did they say what the cause of death was? They didn't, but you know, they indicated that his body was just completely bruised up. So I'm oh, assuming God. it was just complete internal injuries and shut down. But this wasn't the only, you know, we talked about other things that go on, other hazing rituals once you're already part of the team, even though he was part of the team, but it came to light in the court documents that there were also what they would call hot seat beatings, where this would even take place on the bus when they were driving to events. So there was a bus driver on there. There was a band director. They were up front. They rode up front. You know, the driver's watching the road and the the band director usually has headphones on watching a movie not paying attention to what's going on behind them, which I think is bullshit because bus drivers, you know, there's cameras, they have mirrors, especially like a college, like a nice college bus like this. But multiple band members told investigators that they would 
be routinely called to the back of the bus, you know, tapped on the shoulder, like, all right, you're up for this hot seat beating, especially after they did something wrong. Like if they had messed up in their performance, they would have a blanket thrown over them and they, they were just like pummeled with fists and drumsticks. So this, obviously there is, there's a really, really bad history of this at this school and with the band specifically. There were murmurs of a completely botched investigation and even a cover-up in Robert's case. Wow. The family learned that the police allowed students, meaning the suspects in this case, to go back on the bus to gather their stuff before processing the bus. And then the bus was returned to the bus company without forensic processing being done. They also were able to find that there were phone records that showed that students involved immediately started reaching out to alumni like as he is being driven off to the the hospital in the ambulance, they're calling alumni saying, holy shit, this thing just happened. How, you know, and there was a bit advice being given of how to sort of displace responsibility. Really awful, awful stuff that is showing this generational support and allegiance. And protection. Yeah. And so initially, none of the students involved were ever put on academic probation or arrested. Four students were briefly suspended, but then they were allowed to go back to school. The school's band director was fired, but then they reinstated him and then just put him on admin leave. Robert's mother, Pam Champion, had this to say, which I think is just a beautiful statement in the sense that she's calling out what is happening. And she said, quote, FAMU cannot go on with business as usual. They need to clean house. Seriously, they just need to clean house because if you don't clean the filth out, it just stays there. So again, speaking to this just happening over and over again and being allowed and accepted. So in the end, 15 students were charged with Robert's death. One was convicted of manslaughter, of felony hazing, essentially, that resulted in death, and then two counts of a misdemeanor hazing. And he was sentenced to six years in prison in 2015. His attorney ended up arguing his conviction in front of the Florida Supreme Court, stating that the incident was akin to, get ready to gag, a sports competition, not hazing. Wow. But fortunately, his conviction was upheld. And he was actually one of several band members to get prison time in this case. Well, I'm really glad that you started with that example of people actually being held responsible, Mm -hmm. especially for something that resulted in the death of someone, because unfortunately that doesn't happen all the time. In fact, the majority of the cases get pled down or the, even the charges that come up at the beginning are, are mild. Right. So I have one from 2016 at Wheaton College. Wheaton College is an evangelical Christian school in Wheaton, Illinois. Five football players in 2016 were charged with a brutal, brutal hazing of a fellow student, resulting in a list of felonies. During the incident, the victim was blindfolded, stripped, bound, gagged with duct tape, beaten, threatened with rape, and further assault. He was then left on an elementary school's baseball field in the middle of the night. The assailants took his phone, his wallet, and one shoe, leaving him virtually naked. So this student makes his way back to campus and manages to call his family. His mother arranges to meet him with his grandparents at a nearby hospital where the ER staff called police and they conducted a rape test. And it was concluded that the victim had not been penetrated, but clearly had just been beaten brutally. Mm. And the assault caused labral tears in both of his shoulders that required surgery. Oh my God. 
Yeah. And shoulder, any kind of shoulder, like we've yeah. talked about all the time, shoulder injuries are the, the worst. When the victim was later interviewed by police, he described only the assailant's voices as sounding Middle Eastern accents, and they were playing loud Middle Eastern music on their car radio. The victim <sighs> himself is not of Middle Eastern descent, and it's supposed that this was a further attempt to instill fear in him. A very racist attempt to instill very, fear. Very, very racist. Thank you. The day after the attack, the victim's father moved all his belongings out of his dorm. He transferred to another school within the state of Indiana. He was quoted as saying, this has had a devastating effect on my life. What was done to me should never occur in connection with any participation in a football program or any other activity. So as I said, ironically, Wheaton College is an evangelical Christian institution in Wheaton, Illinois. It's a small school that has about 2,800, 2,850 students. And its mission this is described on the college website as providing, quote unquote, excellence in Christian education. Those individuals in enrolled are required to abide by a, quote, community covenant that is based on what the college views as Christian principles. The mission statement describes the responsibilities of that covenant as the quote here, the call to pursue holiness in every aspect of our thought and behavior and the call to treat our own bodies and those of others with the honor due the very temple of the Holy Spirit. So I think safe to say that this can just happen anywhere. Right, right. I mean, I don't by any means to imply that it was done because it was a Christian university. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that it's ironic that, you know, the whole idea is that you're you go to this school because you have a particular set of beliefs and you want to play football for them and then you engage in this behavior so the suspects were charged with a range of crimes it was five people who were charged a range of crimes including mob action unlawful restraint and aggravated battery which was the most serious charge and that in itself in illinois carries a potential penalty of two to five years in prison however that didn't happen (laughs) it didn't happen the judge waived one year of conditional discharge to that player agreeing with the defense that 50 hours of community service he completed while at Wheaton College satisfied the court. So a week's worth of service, 50 hours in exchange for your victim experiencing lifelong trauma and Mm. career ending or sports career ending injuries. The misdemeanor count is similar to like the range, kind of in the range of a traffic ticket. That individual entered an Alford plea. And that means that he maintained his innocence while admitting that the prosecution has enough evidence to prove guilt. So his attorney described him as a person of excellent character. He was the driver. He was the driver of the truck. And I guess this was because he went to the dorm room the next day and apologized to the victim. That shows his character. Something. Yeah. It's it's something. I mean, it's something. <laughs> it's something. I mean, then again, like you, he himself, all of them were victims of groupthink and of yes. that that phenomenon. And I'm not letting anybody off the hook, but the other assailants received one year of conditional discharge. Each were fined $250 in order to complete a hundred hours of community service with 25 hours of those consisting of speaking to kids about the dangers of hazing. Mm. One, apparently I did research and I don't want to mention any names. Like I don't want to, I'm not mentioning any names at all on this one. Cause if you want to go look for it, it's all online. One of the assailants continues to do hazing speeches around the country, which I think indicates maybe he really realizes Good. The the impact of this. One of the other assailants is quoted as saying, this college prank was never intended by anyone to harm or even upset him. In fact, quite the opposite. Anyone that's grown up with brothers knows that sometimes boys in friendship wrestle with each other or even give each other's Charlie horses when that other is not looking. This was never really meant to be much more than that. Oh, 
boys will be boys. They will. But let me, let's also like, so you want to give people the benefit of a doubt. I mean, I think that's always important. We want to follow the standard laws. We want to respect those. However, this same football team was criticized in 2015 after the members of the team wore KKK robes and carried uh, Confederate flags as part of a, quote, team building activity in a campus gym. And they apologized and said, oh, no, this is just a skit. We're just we're doing a a takeoff on Martin Lawrence and Will Smith and Bad Boys, too. Great, great choice, guys. Yeah. Great choice. Yeah. 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 I I, I can hear the beep on that truck backing up. The blatant racism that goes on in colleges and high school campuses throughout the country is a whole other. It's brutal. And I, you know, I would even like I'm glad you brought that particular specific point up is because I went to a liberal arts. Methodist College. And I had a great experience. For the most part, there were some things that were very, that were challenging for me as a young gay man. But it's not been until literally decades later, after having a lot of experience working with a diverse group of coworkers and then going to clinical psych programs that were based on inclusion and diversity mm-hmm. where you have these moments where you realize, oh, wow, my friend so-and-so had it way worse than yeah. I did. Absolutely yeah. worse than I did. They, like if I even had the words to to put together an apology, you know, I sure. after all these decades, it's it's time to to make amends for those for not not things that I well yeah maybe some things that I did I got to examine that more but also being complacent you know you're mm-hmm. not complacent but complicit yes in things yes. you know but Absolutely. again it's, it's context and why does it always fall like you know here you are saying the mission statement of your school is this this set of high moral Moral ground, and yet you engage in these terrible behaviors. Well, it's it's that disbursement of responsibility that we're talking about because you know the schools pay out. You know they get sued. They pay out. Some organizations, some fraternities get shut down. You know that chapter at that school, but then it does end up getting pinned on particular perpetrators. I think they get the worst of it, which. I'm not saying they shouldn't, but I'm saying there there needs to be levels of responsibility and accountability all throughout from the school, the organization, and then that's the a people. really good point. That is a um, very good point. But you know, if you have one guy that ends up going to prison for six years, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen next year. As far as media representations, I'm not going to say too much about this because I think the majority of them are for comic relief. And, exactly. You know, ones that we we can maybe relate to and we laugh at. You know, I, I think of Super Troopers, one of my favorite I, I don't really watch cop movies or shows, but you know, this is such a great group of comedians and they're so hilarious. Um, well m- meow, I want to watch the movie. <laughs> Do you meow? <laughs> right meow. <laughs> you know, but they they have a, a rookie that they just fuck with the whole time. Old school, right? I already mentioned that. There's yeah. the cinder block trust test where they have the guys on the ledge of a building with a cinder block tied to their penis and they have to trust that they made the rope long enough that when they drop it off the ledge that they will be okay. I'll let you Google that and watch it for yourself to see what happens. Or, you know, more like drama depictions like the skulls, which is based off off of skull and bones with sort of these elaborate theatrical trials that they put these guys through or so. jawbreaker remember jawbreaker with jawbreaker was the up? was the high school sorority and they locked the girl in the trunk with a jawbreaker t- taped in her mouth and she chokes to death oh jesus didn't you ever see that i think no. rose mcgowan is in it oh yeah it's like i mean but that one was 
Yeah. Once again, I think you made a really great point that it's these these situations are plumbed for comedy, even when they involve like a wacky death, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Kind of that that shock factor. But, you know, what's the solution here? We talk about how it seems like a really tough problem to solve. In Rand's report, they recommend that, you know, anti-hazing efforts need to be implemented at the organizational level and then also targeted to the personal level. And that comprehensive anti-hazing initiatives need to include both of those elements. And specifically, they found in the military that the the anti-hazing training that happens, the content focuses on providing facts and information that increases the knowledge about what hazing is. Like, okay, here's what to look for. But it doesn't really address the attitudes, the skills, the behaviors for changing the culture. So I love that they recommended that that's what needs to happen. And, And I agree, you know, after doing this research, I think... If we taught students, here are the mind tricks that they're using on you, (laughs) maybe that will make an impact or at least make them go, "Hmm, what's going on here? Am I going to fall for this? Do I need to be a part of this? There's a lot of benefits that come from being part of an in-group, especially career support, emotional development. I mean, all those things can be done very well, but you don't have to build the cohesion through basically institutionalized sanctioned abuse. Right. But I, once again, an episode where it was suggested by someone, I mean, I've thought about it. I never realized Mm -hmm. that there was this much research or the extent. I mean, you read about these things and then they kind of like, well, that's a terrible incident. And then you kind of file it away. And how much information is out there that we have no idea about because people don't report it, right? Until it becomes injurious or or causing of a death. Yeah, if you really want to feel the impact of this, Dateline did a special where they sat down with about a dozen parents who had lost their sons. Oh my gosh. This, including Robert Champion's parents were on there. And just feel what it feels like in that room where you send your kid off to college and to start their life and some bullshit like this happens. We got to put a link up to that. We'll put a link up to that on the the page and stuff. All right. Dr. Shiloh, thank you for this lovely Sunday morning. Oh, you're welcome. Please carry on with your day. (laughs) I'm very excited. If anybody hears moaning in the background, um, I'm not torturing anyone. My downstairs neighbor has an adorable husky dog that is talking to their baby. So that's what he does. It's very cute. So no one's being injured. Good. Well, thanks for that. (laughs) All right, Scott. I will see you later. And everyone, we will catch you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye, folks. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. 
Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.